you have your Bibles tonight, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah still as we are journeying, journeying through that book. And uh, last week we were uh, in verses uh, 6 through 14, and uh, we were talking about the fact they were rebuilding the wall, and uh, they faced opposition, and they had uh, enemies who wanted to attack them, and the Jews um, struggled with that. And we know that uh, Nehemiah puts up a, a plan to put people in certain parts of the wall to fill the gaps. And I want to just remind you of verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. And so, we don't fear is the key to serving the Lord. Then we see here the reason why we fight. Great and awesome and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses, that we are fighting today, not just for our brethren, but we are fighting for the generations to come. And we talked about how we must build a foundation that not only lasts today, but tomorrow. And I talked a little bit about the fact that the church was 200 years old and that the foundations that were laid were laid before most of us were ever even a part of this church. And hopefully that the work of God will continue long after we are gone. And that is the goal. And so that's where we found ourselves that the people are rebuilding the wall. They've got men stationed in the gaps. Uh, everything is kind of going the way it should be going. And this is important tonight because I want to show you that you must always be on guard if you're taking notes. Because in verse 15, and we're going to read verses 15 through 21, because serving has its blessings and challenges. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all of the house of Judah. So half of them defended Half of them worked. All right. Sometimes you might be the defender. Sometimes you might be the one that is working. Everyone has a different place and a different purpose in the kingdom of God. And so it says in verse 17, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked a construction and with the other they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And so even those that were working were carrying their weapons because an attack was always a possibility. It said in verse 19, Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes. 
except that everyone took them off for washing. And I want to just explain this situation because what comes next. And so Nehemiah has a strategy where everybody is working. Sometimes they're guarding. Uh, this would have been done for multiple reasons. Sometimes the physical work would have been extremely exhausting. And so while standing guard would have been exhausting as well, it would have given them a break from the carrying the stones, cleaning out the rubble. And so as we see here, Nehemiah has a strategy. You work for a while and you rest for a while. And he rotates them in and out, as we know. But also that they were so worried about this attack that they literally only took their clothes off to wash them. They literally slept with their clothes and attire on because they could always be attacked. And I say this tonight because the work they were doing, and I don't want you to miss this, was one under the Lord's direction. The Lord told them to build the wall. That God gave them the inspiration and Nehemiah the instruction to rebuild the wall. They have overcome the threat of their enemies. And so everything in our mind would be saying, this is going exactly like it should. We're accomplishing like what God wants us to accomplish. This should be the starting point of everything going the nation of Israel's way. But in verse 1 of chapter 5, I want to just read these verses to you. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. So here we are. People are working. They're serving. They're moving. They're doing. And right here, we don't see a threat from outside. We see a threat from inside. And I don't want you to miss this because something begins to happen, right? They begin to get tired. They begin to grow weary. The wives and children of these men who are in Jerusalem working are beginning to get tired of their spouses being gone. You can see this in the war in Ukraine today. You are starting to see reports of Russia mother, Russian mothers wanting to know where their sons are, where their daughters are, and, and the soldiers are. They've not heard from them. So they begin to grow weary. And the same thing was the case in Israel's day. And we literally see here in verse 2, for there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many, Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Now, something had happened here. They were economically suffering. Why? Because the men who were working in the fields, who were planting the crops, who were, who were tending to the vineyards, were what? Building a wall. And so, everything in the nation has slowed down economically. And so, they begin to wonder, we need to eat. How are we going to thrive? How are we going to succeed? And so tonight I really want you to think about this because many times in our walk with the Lord, we really do push, right? We want to try to be the servants that God wants us to be. We want to try to be the church that God wants us to be. We want to be the, the, the family that God wants us to be. But there are times, if we're not careful, that when we are doing what God has asked us to do and God has called us to do something, we have to be very careful not to neglect what is a necessity? And don't miss that. Because they were not doing anything sinful, but yet there was still a need. There was still a problem that arose. I want you to think of it kind of like this. As the church grows, as the church expands, uh, workers begin to do more. 
And workers begin to serve in this ministry and that ministry. And, and if you've heard anything about church, it's 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And if you've been in church very long and all, you know it's usually the same people doing this and they're doing this and they're doing that. And that's very dangerous in a church because that's not how God intended it to be. God intended for all of the saints to do the work that God has gifted you to do. Same way in a, in a home, right? If your kids are involved in sports like ours right now, Monday night's practice for one kid, Tuesday night's practice for two kids, Wednesday night's a practice for a different kid, Thursday night is game practice and lessons, right? Uh, Saturday is two ball games here, two ball games there. And so literally as you are doing something that's not necessarily sinful, it's not necessarily wrong, you begin to get exhausted. Our biggest fight at home is if you weren't gone all the time and we weren't gone all the time, maybe this house would not look like somebody that was homeless moved in and lives here while we're gone. And so there's nothing sinful about what is going on at this time, but yet there are necessities, things that I view as necessities, excuse me, that aren't being done. And so that begins to put a strain on the relationship. It can be a strain on the church. It can be a strain at home. It can be a strain at work. If you've ever worked anywhere that is production-based, when I was at Walgreens, you had multiple times of the year that were extremely business busy. Christmas. But the month before Christmas, you began shipping everything to stores, right? And so you have all this merchandise that you're cramming into stores. And so it's, you gotta work over, you gotta work over, you gotta work over. But about the second week of December, when all this stuff was out, it was like, does anybody want to go home with no pay because we have no work? We called it lack of work. And I always took it because I didn't want to be there. The longer I was there, it was okay. And then about Easter, or Valentine's Day, excuse me, about eight weeks before Valentine's Day, right after the first of the year, it was you gotta work, you gotta work, you gotta work, you gotta work, and, and they were pushing you and pushing you because you gotta get it out, you gotta get it out, and bosses are grouchy and employees are grouchy, and, and it's the first of the year, so everybody's burned their vacation days and nobody's at work. And, uh, it's just this stressful time and things begin to crack. And if you know anything about that, usually you have more accidents. Right? Because you have people on equipment that are pushing and pushing and pushing, trying to drive faster, trying to get more accomplished, and so there are more wrecks. People who are loading trucks are trying to load faster and they're loading more, and you have more energies. So the stress of success begins to show cracks in the foundation. And that's what we see here in the nation of Israel. Anybody ever experienced anything like that before? Well, I mean, you could even see that in the early church, right? People are being saved and being saved and being saved. And, and the apostles say, you know, the church is growing and it's expanding. There's a disagreement. Uh, I always get a kick out of this because they didn't say, well, we're going to do some more administrating, right? We're going we're gonna to try to fix this our way. No, they say, we're going to do something else. Remember what the apostles said they were going to do? They were going to get deacons. And they were going to do what? Yes, but the, the apostles were going to pray and preach. And so we see in that moment of great growth that there was stress, there was friction. And so even in times of great blessing, or even in times of great obedience to God, when He is using you, there will always be a temptation to do too much, to go too hard. 
and to not be on guard for those areas that Satan begins to work and begin to use. For us, six children are a blessing. Some days it's hard to see it, but the, the stress that comes from having all of that other stuff, it weighs on us a lot of days. And so I just really want you to see this tonight because usually we talk about be on guard from the sin that, that, that's going to entrap you and, and be on guard from straying from God. But these people were facing this doing exactly what God had told them. It's kind of like it's too much of a good thing can sometimes be bad. Now that dessert back there that Karen made might be, might be, one of, why is my wife calling at 6.45? Anyway, um, might be one of my favorite desserts to eat in the whole world. Might possibly. The fact that it's got the chocolate and that it's got the Oreos crushed up in it. And if you really want to see your blood sugar go high, you put an Oreo cookie on top of it. And it is an amazing thing. It's delicious. But I can promise you, if you sat down and tried to eat that whole pan, as fast as you can and as much as you can, you will most likely be very happy for a while and then extremely sick. I subbed my daughter's class the other day because it's the only time I get to see them. And I have one, two rules when I sub. Don't cuss and don't hurt each other. And if you're at Dalgren, I'm going to bring soda with me and you can drink as much as you want throughout the whole day. It's a terrible thing, but I'm bribing them to like me. And so I talked to a parent after I was there that day and her daughter drank nine cups of root beer throughout the day. And she said, my daughter was so happy when she got home from school and so sick about an hour later. Why? Because too much of a good thing was bad. You say, Jake, why would you give them that? There's no rule because I can't. So I do. But in our walk with God, we have to be very careful of taking opportunities that come in front of us when we need to take rest, when we need to take a season to step back and to seek what God would have for us. Other thoughts? So I just want to show you that sin is always knocking on the door because we look here in verses 3 through 5. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have lands and <clears throat> vineyards. So I just want to read this to you from, from the study Bible that I have, because I think it's hard for us to kind of understand this in the context of the day. But what we see here is, it is possibly referring to the nobles who would not work and had alliances with their enemies. The people were fatigued with hard labor, drained by the relentless harassment of their enemies, poor and lacking the necessities of money, lacking tax money and borrowing for it, 
and working on the wall of the city rather than getting food from the country. On top of this came complaints against the terrible exploitation and extortation of the rich Jews who would not help but force people to sell their homes and children while having no ability to redeem them back. Under normal conditions, the law offered the hope of releasing these young people through the remission of debt, which occurred every seven years or the 50th year of Jubilee. The custom of redemption made it possible to buy back the enslaved individual at almost any time. But the desperate financial situation of those times made that appear impossible. So think about this, right? These people had debts they could not pay. They had taxes that they could not pay. And so they borrowed to pay the taxes. And when they could not pay it back, they literally had to let their family members go into indentured servitude, a form of slavery to pay off that debt. And then you had these rich people who, if you remember through our study, didn't want to help, didn't want to work, but yet were taking advantage of their fellow Jewish people. You see, people have always been corrupt. That's why the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root of all evil, as one political party would tell you. But the love of money and the covetousness of wanting things will cause you to commit all kinds of evil. So for instance, it will cause you to cheat on your taxes. It will cause you to rob some inheritance that was intended for someone else. It has caused murder as someone has been robbed on the side of the street. You see, the love of money, the love of more, will cause you to commit many other sins. I have seen this um, in the before. I've seen someone who, who convinced someone that they were in love with them and another person loved them just so they could marry into a family for wealth. And when the time came where they could get half of everything, guess what happened? They stayed in a happy marriage. No. They got out and took what? Half of everything. And so the love of money will cause all kinds of evil. It caused these people to literally take someone's children and bring them into slavery. You say, well, Jake, they shouldn't have borrowed if they couldn't pay it back. I understand that. The Bible definitely talks about that and about paying back what you owe and all of these things. But what we see here is a wickedness. We see the same thing we see with the money changers in the book of Matthew when Jesus overturns it. They have created the situation. Then they have been the answer to the situation. And they have taken advantage of it. It's just like the DMV. Now I know I brought this up Sunday night and I'm bringing it up again. The DMV is the problem. We don't need a sticker. You don't need a license plate. You just need to be left alone. Alright? You need insurance. I get that. Preach it, yeah. But the government sets the law and then they charge you to accomplish the law. And then at the, if you break the law, they what? They fine you. So no matter what you do, they are taking something from you. I believe you ought to have a safe vehicle on the road. I believe you ought to have a driver's license. I believe all those things. But the simple fact that the government makes this cycle is, eats me up. But at least we have a friendly DMV. All right? Most DMVs you go to, not friendly. Don't go to Mount Vernon. 
All right? It's miserable slow. Our DMV has got wonderful people. But it's this mindset, right? You create a problem. You provide the answer to the problem. But yet you are taking advantage of the problem that you created. And I, I'm going to say this and it's going to get me in trouble. It's kind of like the fact if you have a law about illegal immigration, you do not force illegal immigration laws. You then send all of the baby formula in America to the southern border. And then people do not have baby formula. And today the President of the United States invoked the Defense Act that takes over making baby formula so you can answer the problem of baby, for, for, baby formula shortage that you what? You created it. So you create a problem, you answer a problem, and you take advantage of people while you do it. Now you say that's too close to home, Jake. It's exactly what was going on here. It does. It does. It's a nation that has lost its way. But I don't want you to miss this because I want you to see Nehemiah's response. Because no matter what is done, we always must respond with what does God want? What does God want in every situation? And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, now don't miss this, he was angry, but then he did what? He thought. Most of us get angry and we talk. <laughs> right? Take this piece of advice from Nehemiah. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers. He doesn't rebuke those who are being oppressed. He doesn't rebuke those who are being taken advantage of. He doesn't rebuke those who have had to sell their children into slavery. He rebukes those who have caused the problem. But I want you to notice who they were. They were the nobles and the rulers. They were the who's who's of Israel. They were powerful. They were influential. But yet Nehemiah recognized something. Right is right and wrong is wrong no matter who does it doesn't matter if it's a Republican in the White House or a Democrat. Right is right and wrong and wrong. doesn't matter who's in the, gover in the governor's mansion. If it's a Democrat or it's a Republican, right is right and wrong is wrong. doesn't matter who's on the county board. Right is right and wrong is wrong. doesn't matter if they are the most influential family in church or they are a family that has no money and no influence. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And that has to be our mindset. No matter what God calls us to do and who God calls us to deal with, right is right and wrong is wrong no matter the statue of a man or the stature of a man. Excuse me, a statue of a man. That's a whole other uh, idol worship. But it goes on and says, each of you is exacting pretty much interest, if you're not for sure what that is, from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Now I don't want you to miss this. 
Nehemiah addresses them as an assembly. It's kind of like the mindset of in the New Testament, right? If you have an issue with somebody, you go to them. If you have another, if the issue is not resolved, you go to them two or three. But since there's a whole political group of people, he brings an assembly together of them and the other people. Why? Because the people need to see that Nehemiah is trying to do what's right. If Nehemiah does not want to lose their confidence, if he does not want to lose the influence, he has to show them that he is willing to do what is right no matter the cost. And I think this is important because many times most of us don't like to take a stand because it might not work out well. right? We might not like, a, like to make a stand because of the blowback or what the fallout might be. But Nehemiah realized something that if you lose credibility with the people you're trying to lead, you cannot lead them. That's why in our country, you have a country that is tearing itself apart. You have 30% of the country who think this party is only what is right. You have 30% of people on this side who think that their party is right no matter what. And you have 40% of people in the middle that who knows what they think. It could be this, it could be that. And those two groups of people do not trust anything that the other group does. No matter what you say, you could look up and say, man, that's a white wall. And the other party would say, oh no, it's off-white. That's a, that's a gray sound panel. Nope, that's not gray. That's, uh, that's I don't know what off-gray is. So, uh, me, I'm off and I'm gray. So, <laughs> literally, that's the mindset. There is no trustworthiness. There is no... There is no credibility because why? Neither group deals with issues. Both political parties do not. What's good for me is not good for you, etc. And so he realizes something here. I have to address this. He could have said the nobles and the rulers, they're the people with power. They're the people who support me. They're the people who, who could help me. They're the people who could get stuff done. But yet they are the ones living in sin. And it has to be addressed. And so I think it's very encouraging for me as a pastor to know that you just have to be that way. You have to march forward no matter what. It wouldn't be the first time in a Baptist church that a pastor stood up to somebody who of influence and they were no longer the pastor. Right? There's, there's plenty of examples of standing up to the boss's favorite worker or the boss's step cousin at work, right? And that person loses their job. You see it in every situation. But yet Nehemiah shows us something that I hope you and I can come to a place where we can do is we can do what is right no matter the cost. All of us want that, I think, but it's a whole other thing when it is right in front of you. And you're asking yourself the question, is the fallout worth it? Is the pushback worth it? If I'm honest on this form at work, uh, do, could it cost me my job? Am I honest on my taxes? I might have to pay an extra $10,000. If I'm honest with that police officer, I might get four tickets instead of two. Whatever it may be, are you willing to do what is right no matter the cost? Thoughts, questions, um, disagreements. Yeah, they were borrowing it to eat. They were borrowing it to pay their taxes. Um, yeah, for necessities, absolutely. But he, he tells them what the real problem is. Was someone talking? I'm sorry, I don't hear. 
I'm good? Okay. So don't miss what he says to them. He talks about the fact that when they were taken into captivity, they were sold into slavery. And that was a terrible thing. And, and you've heard them in the, their years of captivity about all that was going on, right? You can read about uh, the different people who were in captivity who did the right thing. And he says, but once we got out, we're doing the very same thing to our brethren that this wicked pagan nation did to us. It's literally the epitome of hypocrisy. We were brought into slavery. We wanted God to deliver us from slavery. And now we're putting ourselves in slavery. How can we think that's right? And I think this is important tonight because all of us can be guilty. All of us can be guilty of calling out someone else's sin, but yet committing the same sin when we need to. Now, you might not struggle with that, but Jesus literally talked about that when He said, first remove the what from your own eye before you remove the from your brother's eyes. This is that concept. Oh, they hated being slaves. They hated being in captivity. They couldn't believe it had happened to them. But yet when God gives them their freedom, the first thing they do is the very thing they hated. And so tonight I really want to encourage you that not only does He tell them to the right thing no matter of the cost, He is really just calling out the fact that they're being hypocrites. And that has not changed. All of us can be hypocrites. All of us can overlook sin in our own life and in our family's life. I think the thing that I see that this is the hardest with for parents, myself included, well, my kid would never... Do that. Miss Bonnie, you were a teacher for many, many years. Did you ever have a parent that thought their kid didn't do whatever it was that they shouldn't have done? A few, yeah. Right? Just as soon as you were guilty. <laughs> Dave, you taught for how many years? Did you ever have a parent that thought their kid couldn't have done it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Once or twice. How many of you have ever seen a parent who thought their kid was the best athlete in the world. No matter, yeah, I can't remember, right? Never had a parent get upset because their kid wasn't playing or didn't make the team. No. Why? Because the people we love the most or the people who impact us the most are always going to be our blind spots. Always. Starting with ourselves, starting with our children. Those are the areas that we have to be the most on guard with. Because those are the temptations that we face. But it goes on and says, in verse 8, there at the very end, then they were found silent and found nothing to say. They literally had no answer. Literally, Nehemiah is laying down some truth. They know it's right and they have no answer. Then I said, so he didn't stop there. Right? He just keeps on going. It's kind of like, hey, I've got them on their heels. I, I, I'm already in this this deep. I might as well keep on keeping on. And so it says, Then I said, what, are you, what you are doing is not good. You should not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of our nation. Let me read it the way it's written. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of our nations, our enemies? 
I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this. Usury. Usury. Whichever way it's pronounced. Restore now to them, even to their days, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So the issue is not that they are loaning them money. It is they are loaning them money with interest. Because the Bible literally says that the Old Testament Jewish people are not to lend money and charge interest. You do not charge interest to your brethren. A piece of advice, if you've never learned this, never loan money to family. Don't. Just give it away. You say, oh, Jake, I couldn't do that. I'm telling you, 99 out of 100 times, it ends bad. 99. But what you should never do is charge interest to your family. And what we see here is the Bible talks about the fact that you could take interest from a foreigner, someone who wasn't Jewish. It's not a sin to make money and run a bank. And not, it's not a sin. But it was a sin to charge interest to your fellow Jewish person. A person of the same religion, a person of the same nationality, and what they were doing was not only charging interest, they were charging it at an absurd amount. It's kind of like if you've ever seen a commercial, right? You can buy here and you can pay here. You pull up in the Mount Vernon, you hang it left, you go in there, you ask, what's the interest rate for this car? Don't worry about the interest rate. What can you afford every month? Well, that don't matter. What's the interest rate? No, don't worry about the interest rate. What can you afford Every month. Why is that? Because the interest rate at a place like that is usually somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 25 percent. Well, if you've ever borrowed money, you know that is not a good deal <laughs> at all. And do I know there are circumstances that people get into that that's the only option they have? Yes. But I am telling you that is an absolute ripoff. And I believe it should be outlawed. But I'm a small government guy. Make your own bed, you lay in it, okay? But what we see here is the same thing going on in the lives of people. And so I just really hope tonight that you will see this and the intent behind it. It was to get rich. It was to profit on the suffering of other people. A way that I think of that in today's world is, if you've ever seen, uh, not a coyote like an animal, but if you've ever read about the southern border, they are charging people absurd amounts of money to sneak them across the border. And what usually happens is those people never, they never arrive. They take them out, they take their money, they murder them, they take them out, take the girls, sell them into slavery. They, they do all kinds of terrible things. Because why? These people are desperate. And they are offering a service to take advantage of that need. And it causes great pain. And so today I want to just tell you this as a church. I think it is very important that we always make sure that what we do financially is above board. How we handle the church's money, how we spend the church's money, 
should always be above board. And so every month, if you want to know every penny that comes in, every penny that goes out, it's on a report and you can see it. It's open to the public. You can take it, put it on Facebook. I don't know why you would, but you can. All right? Say the preacher's overpaid. Here it is, right here. You could do that. Why? Because why? When you begin to only worry about money, it will cause you to do terrible things. And that includes churches. And I'm just going to say this tonight, and if you don't like it, you can fire me. It's okay. That is why no matter what someone gives in a church, they should get no special treatment from someone who has never given a penny. I have no idea what people give. As far as I know, the only person that knows what everybody gives is Selena. So if she's mean to you, it's probably because you don't give enough. <laughs> that's a joke. That is just a joke. She's in here, so that's why I said it. Just a joke. Just a joke. Why? Because loving people the same as a pastor is almost impossible. Just going to throw that out there to you. If you're here all the time, and you're involved all the time, and you're an encourager all the time, and you're always willing to do what the church needs you to do, you are way up here on the likable list, okay? Way up here. If you're never here, but yet gripe about everything, don't participate, and are always talking about about the church, you are down here, okay? But yet the Bible says what? Show no partiality, no favoritism. So when that person that's over here says, hey, Jake, I'd like to share what I think about church. Oh, I'd love to hear it. Please, share. But this person over here, it's like, hey, Jake, I'd love to share about the church. I don't care. Keep it to yourself is what I want to say. Or if that person's in the hospital, the flesh in me says, well, I'm not going to go see them. They're driving me nuts. But then God has to remind This is just being honest. You can take it for what it's worth. But then the Spirit begins to say, maybe this is the opportunity that they need to be loved. And the flesh in me says, well, that was 17 times ago. This one ain't going to work any better. But you go anyway. We do the funeral meal for the family that's never here, just like we would the family that's always here. right? We're going to try to minister to the family that's always in a mess and to the family that never has a mess. And so the church must always realize that every person that God sends them has value. And that we should not take advantage of someone or neglect somebody because what they have or do not have. Because look what it says in verse 12. And this is really important as we try to close. So then we, they said, we will restore it and we will require nothing from them and we will do as you say. Because Nehemiah called them out on their sin and the Spirit of God was at work they did what was required. They said, we will turn from the way we are going and we will do things the right way. We will return what we have taken. This is literally a, a sign that they have turned from their wickedness and turned to what is right. And as a pastor, that's literally the goal of every sermon that I preach. That God's people would realize the sin in their life, turn from it, and follow the Lord. If you're lost, that you would turn from your sinful ways to the Savior. This is literally what we see God at work in their lives. And look what it says in verse 12, the second part. 
that I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, Go, may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Now I want to just say two quick things because we're out of time. One, he starts with the priest. Why is that? Because judgment always starts in the house of the Lord and in those who are considered spiritual leaders in the church. Literally, this church ought to hold their pastors and their deacons to a higher standard. You should. It's not my job to hold me to a higher standard. It's your job. If your your deacon doesn't visit you, doesn't call on you, doesn't check on you, you ought to let them know. Hey, we got seven people in our family battling cancer and I've never heard nothing from you. You ought to have the encouragement to tell them that. Now, please tell them nicely, right? Or if you've got a sick family member and I didn't get to them to visit and I knew about it, you need to call them and say, Pastor, I really think you should have been there. That needs to happen. That's what happened here and there was a change. And yet it started in those people who thought they were the spirit of the leech. Those people who were the spiritual example. And then he begins to work his way down the list. And then he says, if someone doesn't do this, I am praying that God would shake them out. Would remove them from their place of prosperity. Remove them from their place of wickedness. And bring them to nothing. That God will not be mocked. And the people said, Amen. You see, this is why I am a Baptist. I believe in congregationalism. I do not believe that one person should make all the decisions. I don't believe that. I believe the Catholic Church gets it wrong. I believe the Methodist Church gets it wrong. I believe the Episcopalian Church gets it wrong. I don't think that's the way it should be. Right? In the book of Acts, you need deacons. Choose these men from yourselves. Right? The apostles didn't pick them. They did. Why? Because they knew their lives. They knew the example they were living. They knew what God was doing in their life. And that's how it should be in this church. It's not Jake's church. It's not the deacon's church. It's not any one. It's your church. It's the Lord's church that you're a part of. And so if things need to be changed, who should be involved changing them? You should. If there's something that's not being done that should be done, who should be involved in the process? You should. But honestly, let's just be honest tonight, most things in church happen because someone at the top of the proverbial food chain says it should happen. But it's not directed that way. It should be, hey, I've got a neighbor who is going through a really hard time. I wonder if we could get them some groceries. We can do that. Hey, my neighbor is elderly and really needs a wheelchair. Is that something the church could do? I don't have the ability to ride around to everyone's house and find out, is this person needed a wheelchair? Does this need electric bill paid? Does this family member have someone in the hospital? It doesn't work that way. But yet as you go, God has given you opportunities to minister, to make a difference in people's lives, to to use your gifts to serve God. And when the church, when you will begin to get active and get involved and take ownership in what God has given you, 
I believe the potential for a church is unlimited. If it's only the pastor that does it because he's paid, then there's a bottleneck. Only so much can get done. Only so many people can get reached. And I believe God wants to reach people. He wants to use this church and other churches to do it.